This morning we're going to resume our 29-week journey through the book of Hebrews in the series we've entitled The Supremacy of Christ. If you're just joining us, the book of Hebrews, though it is technically and originally a letter, the book of Hebrews reads a lot like a sermon or a theological treatise We don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. It might have been Paul or Apollos or Barnabas or Luke. We just don't know. But whoever did write it, whoever did write this letter, this book, had a deep and comprehensive understanding of the Old Testament had a deep and comprehensive and personal understanding of the Mosaic law and the old covenant sacrificial system. And having a deep understanding of these things was necessary when we consider why this letter was written to begin with. As the title states, this letter was addressed to Hebrews, to Jewish Christians who probably lived in the city of Rome, probably around 66 AD. At this time in history, Christianity was beginning to face some severe persecution. And on account of this persecution, many of the Jewish Christians to whom this letter was written, many of them were backing away from the gospel of Christ. And they were returning to their former ways of Judaism a la the Mosaic law and the temple sacrifices and rituals. In going back to these things, the Jewish Christians were creating a chasm between themselves and the Gentile Christians who were a part of their church. And this chasm that the Jewish Christians were creating by returning to Judaism This chasm that was being created and their returning to Judaism was indicative of this, that they didn't really understand the new covenant, which overshadows the old covenant by way of Christ's death and resurrection. Whoever wrote this letter spills a lot of ink reminding these Jewish Christians that Christ is not just another character in God's redemptive plan. Christ, the radiance of God's glory, is God's redemptive plan. Christ crucified and resurrected. If you have Christ, you have it all. If you behold Christ, you behold it all. If you await Christ, you await it all. Christ is supreme. Over and above the host of angels, over and above the Old Testament prophets, over and above Moses and Joshua and all the temple sacrifices and washings and rituals, Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament foreshadowed. This is the point of the book of Hebrews. And it is the point of our passage this morning, though it may not seem like it at first. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1, oh, sorry, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, 
and then continuing through the rest of chapter 7, all of chapter 7, including our 10 verses this morning, in this passage, the writer of Hebrews begins to extend or expand on the list of important Judaic figures who yield the floor to Christ. At first glance, if you're looking down, our passage seems to be all about a mysterious man named Melchizedek, but the writer of Hebrews is showcasing Melchizedek in order to show us something about the supremacy of Christ. If we look just ahead of our passage, it gives us a little bit of context. Chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, we read this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's where Melchizedek is. Here's our context. In our passage, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, which I'm about to read, the writer of Hebrews is showcasing Melchizedek in order to show us something about the high priestly role of Christ, okay? So I'd invite you to follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Whatever it means. <laughs> oh, sweet mercy. Let's pray together. Father, this is a tricky passage. And we ask, and I ask for your help, that we might understand it, and that our view of Christ would be enlarged by it 
to the glory of God and to the good of our souls, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I have no idea what this passage is talking about. No, I've sweat over this for the remainder of our time. Here we go. I'm going to try and answer two questions that probably a lot of us have floating around in our minds, and, and, the, and the, the Holy Spirit will certainly help us here. Number one, who is Melchizedek? That's just it. That's point number one. Number two, what might this passage have to say to us right now? Because it speaks right now. What might that be? Number one, who is Melchizedek? A lot of us uh, at Oaks Church are reading through or listening through the whole Bible again this year. That's kind of this recurring challenge that we have with one another is to be reading through the Bible as creatures of the Bible. If that's you, if you're on that journey, then you've already come across Melchizedek back in chapter 14 of Genesis. But if you blinked, you missed him. Because Melchizedek exits the story as quickly as he enters it. In Genesis 14, Abraham and his nephew Lot are living in the land of Canaan when a battle breaks out among nine kings. As the battle ensues, Lot is taken captive. And when Abraham hears of it, he rides out with 318 men and he kills four of the kings and he rescues Lot. And then, out of nowhere, as Abraham is journeying homeward, we read this in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Nothing else is said about Melchizedek. He exits the story as quickly as he enters, but then, much later, in 110th Psalm of David, in the middle of a psalm that is prophetic about the coming Christ, Melchizedek makes one last Old Testament appearance. And this is what we read in the first few verses of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's it. That is the last time Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures. And now here in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews brings Melchizedek out of the all but forgotten catalog of biblical characters. 
And here he is. And what a mysterious character Melchizedek is. We're allowed to simply go, who is this guy? Verses 1 and 2, he is king of Salem. And that word literally translates peace. He is king of Salem, the territory that would become Jerusalem. He is priest of the most high God, meaning he represents people before God as a mediator figure between God and men. And his name, Melchizedek, translates into righteousness. That's what his name means. Verse 3 he doesn't have a father or mother or ancestors or a date of birth or a date of death. Verse 4, he is greater than he who is greater than everyone else. Father Abraham, who had many sons. Many sons. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Even Abraham acknowledges Melchizedek's greatness by giving to Melchizedek a tithe, 10% of the battle spoils. And in verses 5 through 10, being greater than Abraham, Melchizedek is therefore greater than the entire Levitical priesthood who descended from Abraham. In fact, the writer of Hebrews quips in verses 9 and 10, it it could be thought this way, it could be understood that even though throughout all of Israel's history, the Levitical priests were the ones to receive tithes from the people, it could be thought this way that, well, they even have already tithed to Melchizedek because they were in the loins of their, of their, of their great, 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 great grandfather, right? It's kind of a biological argument. Now, when we hear all of this, we might not think a lot of it, and that's okay. I mean, even, even me, my mid to late 30s, more later 30s dude coming to the Word, and it's like, oh, what? I, I don't know, and just continue reading. It, we might not think much of this. We might just think, okay, well, so Melchizedek's a pretty big deal, apparently. That's cool. That's awesome. But for the Jewish Christians who were the first to receive this, who were the first to read this or have this preached to them. Theologian Philip Hughes gives us a little bit of an explanation. This puts us a little bit in, 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 in their framework here. For the Jewish Christians who were the first to receive this, because Abraham was the patriarch the ancestral founder of the Hebrew people, the one to whom all the covenant promises had been made and given by God, Melchizedek's superiority over Abraham would have been startling, unsettling. Hughes continues, the greatest boast of the Jewish Christians, of the entire nation of Israel, the greatest boast was that they, not the Gentiles, they were descendants of Abraham. And yet, here 
in their own Hebrew scriptures, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, here is this mysterious man, Melchizedek, mentioned twice in their own scriptures, who is superior to Father Abraham. Like kryptonite. Like, what, 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 do, we, what do we do with this guy? And this was a head-scratcher for the people of Israel. A light-hearted way, a very light-hearted way of illustrating this might be this way. When my wife and kids and I moved to Worcester, I'm not a really big basketball fan, but just kind of like we're in the vicinity of Cleveland, the land, and this is Cleveland Cavaliers territory, right? And it's LeBron, even though he no longer plays for Cleveland, like LeBron, LeBron, LeBron. But bro, what about Michael Jordan, right? Head and, head, head and shoulders over LeBron. And I hope maybe I'm not starting a war, but he is, right? Right? Like, we have this, every basketball fan, every fan of LeJames has this ghost in the closet who is Michael Jordan, who is supreme. We don't know what to do with him. He's just better than everybody else. That is the best way that I can communicate to you kind of what's going on here. And almost from the look, like nobody really cares about basketball here. So it just, it, it flopped. So translate that illustration however you may. But that's the illustration. That's the lighthearted way of looking at this. But it still begs this question, who in the world is Melchizedek? It's a question that the church has asked ever since the ancients of Israel. And it depends on who you ask. Who is Melchizedek? It depends on who you ask. And this is a really good example. Who is Melchizedek is a really good example of something upon which Christians should be able to charitably disagree. Okay? There is no hill I am about to die on in presenting to you who I think. Some Christians, some very faithful, Bible-believing, God-fearing, Jesus-worshipping Christians believe, they think, that Melchizedek must have been a Christophany. That is this, an actual appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Faithful, Bible-believing Christians, some believe that. Other Christians, and I would fall into this category with Philip Hughes and Raymond Brown and Al Mohler, the, the theologians that I, I check in with as I prep my sermons, I think this, that Melchizedek, as mysterious as he was and is, Melchizedek was actually his own person, but simultaneously he served and serves as a type, as a symbol, as an anticipation of Christ. Whenever Melchizedek's name is, is mentioned alongside Christ here in, in the book of Hebrews, it is said that they share the same order, not the same essence. In the second half of verse 3, there's an important word for us to catch in the Greek, and what it means is what it says, resembling the Son of God. Do you see that? Second half, verse 3, resembling the Son of God, resembling Christ, the order that Melchizedek patterned continues forever in Christ. Melchizedek did not manifest the Son of God. 
He afamoi'a'od, the son of God. That is, he modeled the shape of the son of God similar to a facsimile. Now, majority of us, or a lot of us, I should say, are probably no longer in the, in the habit of using fax machines. But the idea is this, that this piece of paper goes in this side and out the other side comes basically the exact thing or a model of it to a T. Melchizedek modeled for us the shape of the Son of God similar to a facsimile. And what an amazing and mysterious resemblance. I mean, Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. And those two offices, priest and king, no one else in scripture holds those two offices except for Christ who holds three, prophet, priest, and king. Melchizedek was named after righteousness and peace. But when Christ comes, he is righteousness and peace. And he extends his righteousness and peace to all who trust him. When it comes to the trickiness of Melchizedek's genealogy, here's my understanding, here's my belief we can disagree, and you can tell me your disagreement. If you buy the coffee, I'll meet you, right? I don't say that as I'm not being antagonistic. I'm just being playful here, kind of. No. When it comes to Melchizedek's tricky genealogy thing, just because nothing is known about Melchizedek's father or mother or genealogy or birth or death, it doesn't mean that he existed completely outside those things. We are simply not told any of that information anywhere in scripture. Kind of like, and here's, here's a rough illustration, kind of like the unfortunate event when an infant is dropped off on the steps of an orphanage. We, we don't know anything about that child, but it doesn't mean that he appeared out of thin air. There is a story, we just don't know anything about it. And here is another way in which Melchizedek is a type of Christ. For all we know, because we know nothing about his genealogy, the guy exists forever because he doesn't have a birthday or a death day. That is just a type. That's not an actuality. In my conviction, he was an actual man who died. But Christ, the fullness of the type, the antitype of the type, really does not have a birthday and a death day in terms of his eternality, right? Whew. This is heady. Melchizedek, I believe, was both a real person and a type or a symbol of Christ. And the order that he shares with Christ, as we will see, Lord willing, in next week's passage, as we'll see, the order that Melchizedek shares with Christ, it plays a very important role when we're talking Christology, theology, talking about bolstering our knowledge of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. Christ's attachment to Melchizedek's order is very important for elevating Christ over and above all the Levitical priests of Judaism and it's very important that Jesus, Christ, that Christ comes from this order because he is the supreme and lasting high priest of all God's people. He is a Jew, but also a Gentile outside of the people of, of Israel, Melchizedek. He is high priest over Jew and Gentile. 
So that is, that's my take. That's my stab at who Melchizedek is. Be gracious to me, please. You always are. Number two, what in the world might this passage have to say to us? Beyond a, an historical lesson about an ancient king who served as a symbol of the coming Christ, what does this passage say that might stir our affections for Christ this morning? Well, I have three thoughts that we'll close with. It'll only take another four or five hours, and we'll, we'll get there. A, B, C. Christ meets us where we're at. B, to bless us with his righteousness and peace. C, and he is worthy of our worship. Christ meets us where we are at to bless us with his righteousness and peace and he is worthy of our worship. I believe we see this in this passage. It's, it's written in between the lines. A, Christ meets us where we're at. When Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham, it was likely on a dirt road in the sun-scorching heat of the day when Abraham was struggling to catch his breath after rescuing his nephew from abduction. With the dried blood of battle on his hands, with sweat and sand all over his face and clothes, Abraham was anything but put together when a king of righteousness, when a king named righteousness came out to meet him and bless him. Allegorizing this a little bit and looking into the antitype of Christ, where do you find yourself this morning? And what condition are you in? Are you walking down what feels like a dirt road in the middle of nowhere, covered in the sweat and sand of heaviness, discouragement, disappointment, uncertainty, fear, failure, fatigue? Are you wounded this morning for any number of reasons? If you're a human being, you're wounded in one way or another, and you're carrying it. You're walking with a limp, maybe on account of your own poor decisions, poor decisions that you have made, or maybe on account of poor decisions that someone you love has made against you, are you atrophied with bitterness and resentment and regret? Where are you at right now and what is your condition? Are you wondering, what could I have done? What should I have done? What would I have done if I were only in anyone else's shoes? What would I, what could I, what should I have done differently? What hope is there for me in this day? God's answer to that question is similar to the way he answered it by orchestrating this appointment between Melchizedek and Abraham. 
Melchizedek was battle-worn, covered in sand and sweat and fatigue. He was probably parched and dying from the sun and relieved that he'd rescued his nephew, but man, he doesn't know where else to go. God's answer to that question, what hope is there for someone like Abraham and like me and you? The hope of the world is here, but not for someone like you. The hope of the world is here for you right now. In the same way that Melchizedek met Abraham when Abraham was least put together, so Christ, our Savior, And the Savior of the world meets us when we are least put together. When we don't have ourselves all in line. Jesus doesn't mince words about this. In Mark chapter 2 verse 17, the Pharisees in that chapter, in that passage, the Pharisees, the religious hoity-toities, They ask Jesus why he was even willing to sit and eat with sinners who didn't have their spiritual act together. And do you know what Jesus tells the Pharisees in Mark 2, 17? He tells the Pharisees that sinners and those who don't have their act together, those are the only people he came to save. He didn't come to save the people who think that they're well. He came to save those who are willing to say, I am not well. I don't have my world in order and my act together. I don't have perfectly religious behavior. I don't have all the answers in my head. I don't have the perfect example of Christ-likeness that I ought to be exemplifying. Guess what? That's the first step in being absolutely qualified to be made righteous and to be given the peace of God that surpasses understanding. When we look at ourselves and see, I don't make the cut, I fall short of the glory of God. Jesus says, yeah, well, I have made the cut and I am the glory of God and I have come that you would be given life and life to the full by trusting in my work on the cross and in the empty tomb. Christ meets us where we are at, not where we should be, not where we could be, not where we want to be or would be, or where we hoped to be at this point in our lives. Is this not the best news ever? Christ meets us where we're at right now, right now, wherever you are at, whomever you are, no matter how battle-trodden and road-weary you are, Christ is here, and he says, I am your hope. Trust me. Trust me. So A, Christ meets us where we're at. B, to bless us with his righteousness and his peace. Abraham was anything but put together when a king who's named after righteousness who ruled over a city that translates as peace, Abraham was anything but put together when Melchizedek came out to serve him bread and wine. What a type of communion that is right there. But Christ, Christ has come to bless you and I with more than just a type or a symbol. He has given us the greatest blessing, the greatest gift imaginable, 
He has given you and I who by faith are in him, he has given to us, imputed to us, fused inside of our DNA, he has given us his righteousness and his peace. He has made you, brother or sister, in Christ, inarguably righteous, signed, sealed, delivered, done. It is a done thing. There is nothing else that needs to be earned to put on more righteousness. There is nothing else that could be done to put on more righteousness. Even your best day, whatever that looks like, of obeying God's word, you're not adding anything to what Jesus has already infused into the marrow of your bones. He came to give us his own righteousness and Wow, how does this sound in a world of unrest? He came to give us his peace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God the Father made Christ, he made Christ who had never sinned to be our sin. He imputed, God imputed our sin to Christ, infused it, put it on him. For our sake, the Father made Christ, who never sinned, to be our sin and then to die on the cross so that you and I would be made righteous with God. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in Christ, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell and through Christ, God has reconciled us to himself, making peace between us by the blood of Jesus' cross. That peace cannot be fractured. There is nothing that we do, no matter how horribly sinful your week has been, you have not jarred and dislocated that peace that exists between you and God. Because Christ said, it's finished. It's done. Could it be that your own mind is the one condemning you and not the Holy Spirit who never condemns us in Christ? The Holy Spirit convicts, but he never condemns because peace has never been altered for those who are in Christ and it never will be altered. You cannot be, here's where I'm going to come out of my reformed shoes a little bit. You cannot be once reconciled to God and made at peace with him, only to mess something up and become unsaved and unborn again and, and at disrest with God. You cannot become unborn again. You cannot do it. If you're truly born again, done. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Philippians 4, 7, right now, extended to you, is this. Peace from God and peace with God, right now, to you, to you. If you, with this little tiny bit of believing faith and repentance, if you come to Jesus and you say, I don't have it all together. I am a sinner. Would you have mercy on me, Jesus? By your blood, would you wash me? Would you forgive me? Would you make me yours? That right there. If you do that, and then you hold your hands out like this as a beggar in the 
in your heart, the hands of your heart, if you just go like this, please. The peace of God that surpasses your understanding, surpasses the difficult moments that you're in right now. We're in a lot of difficulty right now. But there is a peace that transcends that, that will wash over you. Because you know what, believer, brother or sister in Christ, no matter how hellishly awful today gets, no matter how widespread the persecution hits the fan, no matter how ugly and dark and despairing things get, you know what, at the very bottom of all of it, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Death, do what you do. Kill me now because when my eyes close, they awaken to see the face of my king. So A, Christ meets us where we're at. B, to bless us with his righteousness and peace. And C, he is worthy of our worship. I think it's easy to limit that to, well, yeah, my worship. When I'm, when I'm singing to him, oh, 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 that's just part of it. That's just part of a life lived in a posture of worship to he who has met us on the road and blessed us with his righteousness and peace. Philippians 1.27, Paul commands this, and we go over this with my kids, and, and we need to go over it in, in this church a lot. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ that you've come to know and believe and be saved by. That's a pretty big open-ended thing, right? Yeah, so when you go out to lunch this afternoon, if that's your, if that's your thing, or if you go home, or, 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 or whatever it is that you do today, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Your thoughts, only let your thoughts be worthy of the gospel. Take those thoughts captive and kill them and move on. Your, 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 your words, your attitudes, your actions, man, if that... If that were the way we approached every single day, oh Lord, only let my manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That right there is, is the worship that Christ is worthy of. Our time and our talent and our treasure, we could easily talk about tithing. Uh, I don't believe we are, we, are, we are no longer underneath the legal obligation to give 10% of our, of, our, of, our, of our possessions and treasures to the Lord. Instead, in the new covenant, it's the Lord absolutely loves a cheerful giver. We could do that. We'll do that sometime. A sacrifice of praise. But listen to this one from Romans 12.1. I can tell that I'm a bit long-winded on this one. Sorry. By the mercies of God, Paul writes this. Internalize this and make this your own. Romans 12:1. By the mercies of God, I urge you, brother, I urge you, sister, present your very body as a living sacrifice. Present yourself as holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. And here's how you might do that, he says. Do not any longer be conformed to this world but be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Don't, don't get out of the pattern of looking like the world. And anger and lust and 
arrogance and greed and hoarding of our possessions and being jealous of this, that, and the other and lusting after this and gossiping about this. No, here's how to worship the one who has ransomed you forever. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Ask that he would help you to no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. Right now in your heart, repent. I'm sorry, Jesus. Help me to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we'll continue to sing. Well, Father, what I prayed at the beginning of our time still rings true. I mean, this passage that we've delved into, it's a bit tricky and I do, I know that you will be very gracious. There's, there's some mystery here. And I, I thank you, Lord, actually. I do thank you that in your word is mystery. Because if we could completely figure out everything all the time, well, then we would kind of intellectually feel as though we're on your level. And that we are not. Such knowledge, your knowledge is too high. We cannot attain that. But we do ask for your help that you would give us bits of understanding And that in our understanding that our view of Christ would be magnified and enlarged to your glory and to the good of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.